The cross of Jesus can be looked at from many different angles. It's been a personal goal of mine for some time now to preach on the cross of Jesus in my home congregation at least twice a year and maybe more. It is always appropriate, it is always needed, it is always necessary. Because the cross of Jesus is why we're here, and the cross of Jesus is really the pivotal point in history. It is the core. It is the crux of the matter. It is really the heart and soul of Christianity. And today, this morning, for just a few moments, I want to talk to you about the way of the cross. And I've got a few points, and the lesson will be yours. First of all, when we talk about the cross of Jesus, we recognize that the cross of Jesus is and was required. When we think of Jesus Christ being executed, crucified upon a Roman cross, we look at it from a human perspective and we think what a tragedy, what a travesty. What a miscarriage of justice. He, an innocent man, was put to death. He was accused, falsely accused, of blasphemy, of insurrection. Here, an innocent man was crucified between two criminals associated with people who were murderers. And he was deemed and esteemed smitten of God. He was a lowly man with, with uh, a, a reputation that was a shameful and a disgraceful um, picture of a criminal. And yet, when we look at the cross from God's perspective, we see that it was not an accident, but it was a requirement. The cross of Jesus was necessary, and the Bible teaches that it was in, in several places. In Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, Jesus, during his ministry, said, uh, he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that is, Jesus himself, he calls himself the Son of God and the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus knew that when he went to Jerusalem near the end of his ministry, the fate that awaited him there, he was going to be tortured he was going to be beaten. He was going to be rejected. He was going to be humiliated. He was going to suffer many things. And ultimately, he was going to be killed. And Jesus knew the nature of his death and the hideous reality of that death. And the reason Jesus knew it was because it was a part of God's plan. And the reason it was a part of God's plan is because it was required of Jesus to die. We'll talk about why. In Hebrews 2, 14 through 15, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, 
that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. This verse stimulates my mind to go back to the beginning of time. In the beginning of the Bible, we find in Genesis chapter 1, where God created the heavens and the earth, and He created all of man and all of the animals. In chapter 2, we find a supplement to that, where God created uh, uh, Adam and Eve and, and the relationship that they shared. And in chapter 3, we see where Satan appears in the form of a serpent, a subtle, cunning, crafty being that deceived mankind and lured him into sin. And as a result of that sin, man was separated from God. God who was holy could no longer associate and no longer fellowship mankind because of the sin that he had committed. But in God's justice and in his mercy, God provided a covering. Now when Adam and Eve first sinned, their eyes were open and they tried to hide themselves. And they did so by hiding behind a tree and they sewed fig leaves together. But God came along and he gave them tunics of skin. A different covering that required a different sacrifice than picking leaves off of a tree. Now God was going to supply them with a covering that would uh, actually require the death of an animal. And they would wear this covering and as they did so, they would be reminded of the weight and the consequences of their sin. For God said that in the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And most certainly there was a separation, a death that occurred. But in God's mercy, He provided a substitute. He provided a way for them to be covered that would require the death of an innocent animal. Now that animal was inadequate to fully cover the spiritual needs that Adam and Eve had. But it would become a foreshadow. It would become a picture. And it would become a sacrifice in anticipation of the, of the Messiah that would come thousands of years later. You see, God had a dilemma when man sinned and sin came into the world, God who loved man wanted to forgive man, but God is holy and God is just, and therefore He could not just overlook the transgression and the sin. Payment had to be made. A sacrifice had to be given. And that's where Jesus Christ comes in. His death on the cross was required because it would satisfy the love of God in providing a way for man to be forgiven, but it would most certainly satisfy the justice of God by providing the sacrifice and the payment that sin demanded. 
In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you're saved today, it's by the gospel. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain, for I deliver to you first of all that Christ also received, or that which I also received rather, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That simply means that Jesus died according to the plan of God. He predicted it in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. God said it would happen and it actually came to be. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born under the law, born of a woman. But not only that, but that He would be buried and that He would rise again, that He rose again the third day according to the Scripture. God not only planned that Jesus die, but He predicted that He would be buried and we, He would conquer death. That's why the Hebrew writer said that Jesus would conquer death. He would he would provide a way for us to escape the, uh, from the clinches of the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. And it is through his death and through his resurrection that we can be spiritually raised from the dead. But ultimately, physically, we will be raised from the dead and conquer the grave. The sting of death is taken away because of what Jesus did at the cross and resurrected from the grave. The cross was required. There's a lot more that can be said of that. But we can also see that the cross, let's see here, having a little bit of a snag for some reason. The cross was to be reenacted. In Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, Paul says, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Paul is reminding the church at Rome what their baptism actually meant, what their baptism actually accomplished. And he wanted them to know, he wanted to sharpen their attention by asking the question, Don't you know? Don't you know? That when we were baptized into Christ, we were baptized into his death. And then he went on to say, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Here Paul says that the cross of Jesus is reenacted in our obedience to this plan and submission to the act of baptism. We're thankful, and as we mentioned in the announcements for our brother who uh, was baptized last evening, it's always thrilling to witness someone obey the gospel because of what is actually occurring. Besides what you can see with your physical eyes, there is something that is going on spiritual. There's something that is going on uh, between heaven and earth. And there is a relationship that is being changed, a relationship that is being established. And there is a process, there is a reenacting that is going on. 
And just like Jesus died and was buried and rose again, a person who is baptized, they, uh, they are bab baptized into his death. We come in contact with his death. We are buried in what? There's a reason why we immerse when we baptize is because baptism is a burial. Uh, you are buried with Christ. And when you come up out of that water, oh, you're wet and you might be cold, but you know what? You're a new creature. You come up, old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He said, you arise to walk in newness of life. And then he says this, conditional clause. If we have been united together in the likeness of his death, how do you do that? Through baptism. Then we will also be in the likeness of his resurrection. How do you do that? Through baptism. And the implication is, if we are not baptized into his death, we will not benef be benefited by the resurrection. By, in the likeness of his resurrection. And so we have this picture that is painted for us, that is reenacted in this beautiful, wonderful plan that God has given us when a person is baptized into Christ. They die, but they are alive. Arise to walk in newness of life. That's why in Romans 6 and 17, later after he reminds them of what this actually meant, he says, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. So when a person is baptized, they are, they are obeying from the heart a form of the doctrine of Christ. What is the doctrine of Christ? The essence is the death, burial, and resurrection. When you are baptized, you're obeying from the heart, that form of doctrine. It's not that somebody is just baptized, but they do so upon their faith and their resolution to change their life. And they do that. They are delivered. They are delivered from sin. Paul would say it like this in Galatians chapter 2, 12. Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Do you know who do, who's doing the work when a person is baptized? God is. Sometimes people will try, to, will try to resist the need to be baptized by saying that uh, we're not saved by works and that if I'm baptized, then I'm trying to earn my salvation. That's not true. In fact, baptism is a very passive thing. It's something that you allowed to be done to you. But here, Paul says that there's a work that's being accomplished by God. He's doing the work in this. And the work is allowing this transformation to take place in a person's life where they are so saved from their past sin that it is described as a new birth. You're a new cre creation. Old things are done away and all things are become new. Sometimes people wonder, I, I, I just wonder if God can forgive what I've done. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, 
Peter preached the first sermon to a group of people who were a lot worse than you, I'm pretty sure. They were the ones that were literally guilty of killing Jesus Christ, rejecting their own Messiah in their ignorance and sometimes uh, in their hatred and jealousy and bitterness. And yet, Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. What a wonderful thing. What a wonderful promise. But the cross is not only to be reenacted, but the cross is to be remembered. The cross is to be remembered. When you are baptized and you reenact what Jesus did and you are saved, the Lord gives you a new beginning, a new life. But you're never to forget what the Lord did for you. And the cross of Jesus must be remembered throughout the rest of our lives. And the Lord has given us a way to do that. Matthew 26, 26 through 28, before Jesus went to the cross, he was eating with his disciples the Passover, which was a Jewish feast. And at some point during the Passover, near the end, no doubt, Jesus institutes a different meal. And we call that the Lord's Supper. And he said, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, Take eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them saying, Take drink this uh, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we have an echo of this, verses 23 through 26. Paul says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of me. In the same manner also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. We have four different accounts of the, Lord, the Lord's Supper. Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and here 1 Corinthians chapter 11 with a mention of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The Lord intended for his people to remember what he did. To remember him. And so what we have in the supper this memorial meal, this feast that we are about to partake in, are physical elements that remind us of spiritual events. We have physical bread and we have physical grape juice and a physical cup, but they all have spiritual significance. And they have spiritual significance when they are blessed in the service of the church to remind us of the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus and the covenant that was ratified by that blood. Very simple memorial. 
doesn't take a lot of money. It doesn't take a lot of time to build this or to put this together or even to observe this. But it is so sweet. It is so significant. And every Christian is obligated. Well, actually, we should use it like this. Every Christian is privileged to come to the table of the Lord. You have a special invitation. Because you have come in contact with the blood of Jesus and you are in a new relationship with Him, He says, come and dine with me. Come sit with me. Come eat with me. As the family of God, we come and we eat. Now we do this upon the first day of the week. Let me get here. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, we find that the early church did what Jesus told them to do. And we have an example of when they did this. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, what were they doing? They were coming together to break bread. When were they doing it? Upon the first day of the week. That is Sunday. This is our first day, the first day of the week. The reason uh, they did this upon the first day of the week is because, obviously, this was something the Lord wanted, but there is a, uh, a very special event that occurred on this day. It is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. It's called the Lord's Day for that reason. John said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Why is it the Lord's Day? Well, every day is the Lord's Day in, that, in a sense. But there was a special day that was given special significance. The first day of the week when he came out of the grave. And it was upon that day that the church was established. And it was upon that day that the church came together to break bread. And Paul preached to them, and he preached a long sermon. Sometimes I preach a long time, but I've never preached to midnight to where people fell out of a window, but that's what happened to Paul on that day. But they came together, and that was their practice, and that is our apostolic example here. So the cross of Jesus is to be remembered. But last of all, the cross of Jesus is to be resembled. resembled. What does that mean? Well, let me let the Bible explain it for us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 24, Peter says, "For to this were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example." What Jesus did on the cross, the suffering that he went through, is an example for us. It is a lesson for us to look to, to learn from, that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he committed himself to him who judges righteously. He uh, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. So Jesus is an example. He is an example of submission. He is an example of obedience. He is an example of 
of humble service, of, of even uh, being so kind and so loving and so uh, submissive that when he was uh, reviled, he did not retaliate. And Paul or Peter here is telling the church who's going through persecution, now this is a difficult time for you to go through, but here's a lesson for you to follow. What do you do? How do you react? How do you, how do you react when others reject? And you, you resemble the cross by your life, by your love. This is something that is repeated throughout 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10. Paul says, we are hard pressed on every side. Here the great apostle had many things against him. He, he left everything behind to follow Jesus. He had a great future, but he was willing to count it as dung to follow the Lord. And he realized that it wasn't easy. Very quickly, incidentally, his life became drastically different. He said, I, I'm, I'm pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Now think about that. Now here is a man that, that literally had persecution marks on his body. He was beaten, he was whipped, he was stoned. He had physical scars on his body. But he was willing to endure it. He was willing to face it because he remembered Jesus and he looked at those marks as manifestations of opportunity to resemble the Lord Jesus Christ. And whenever you have that perspective, it makes you look at things differently in your own life. We're not going to be stoned to death, I don't think. Chances are that's not going to happen. We're not going to be taken out and beaten. But the sacrifices that we're called upon to make, oh, they really pale in, in comparison. But yet, they're real and they're necessary. And sometimes we have to simply say no to the things we want and change what our priorities may have been or what we would desire. But that's okay. It gives us an opportunity to be like Jesus when we do that. In Philippians chapter 2, and we're almost finished here, verses 5 through 8, Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. God calls upon us when we come in contact with the cross of Jesus to take up that cross and, uh, and follow him for the rest of our lives. 
And our decisions and our sacrifice and our submission and all of the things that we count as loss will be worth it because we are like Jesus. Let this mind be in you. This is a mindset that is necessary and the cross is resembled by a person that makes such decisions and it can be reflected in your life. And it must be. Another powerful passage, Galatians 2:20. Paul says, "I have been crucified with Christ." Literally? No, no. Not literally. But somehow, in some way, as we've already talked, we understand. Paul said, as many of us as were baptized into Christ, were baptized into His death. Paul was also baptized. He said, I, I, I'm in that number. As many of us. And he says, I have been crucified with Christ. What's the result of that decision? It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and He gave Himself for me. And so Jimmy Cading has to, when I live my life, I have to make sure that other people don't see the real Jimmy Cading that used to be, but the Jesus Christ that now lives in me. That's the point. And that's the power of the transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. I've been crucified, I'm dead, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. He's the one. I like how Paul, or the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the forerunner, rather, of Jesus, John the Baptist, put it. He said, Speaking of Jesus, He must increase, but I must decrease. That's our mission as Christians who take up the cross of Jesus, that others see Jesus and not us. Galatians 6, 14, Paul said, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. <clears throat> the cross of Jesus is a dividing point. It's a changing point. And Paul said, it is by the cross that the world is dead to me. It's dead. It's crucified to me. And you know what? I'm dead to the world. I no longer live like I used to live. I no longer think like I used to think. Now, when we become Christians, that doesn't happen overnight. There's a transforming, there's a growing, there's a process. But how we look at sin is different than the way we used to. Now, before, before I'm a Christian, I look at sin as a welcomed guest. Come into my life. Come over to my house. And uh, when sin comes over to my house, before I'm a Christian, when sin came over to my house, I loved sin. We were friends, so I thought. When sin left, I looked for ways to invite sin back. I wanted sin to come back so we could have another fun time. But sin really wasn't my friend. 
And when I came to Christ, and when I, when I crucified my flesh with its passions and desire, it doesn't mean that sin never comes into my house. But it's no longer a welcome guest. It's an intruder. He's a thief. And when sin comes and breaks in, which happens every once in a while, you know what I do? I try to get him out. And once he gets out, I try to figure out how to keep him out. How to keep the doors locked. How to keep the windows barred. I don't invite him. I don't welcome him. And that's the difference, a major difference in how we view sin. Not that Christians are perfect and sinless, but that when we do sin, we understand what sin did to Jesus and it's not our friend and we try to change. One more. Matthew 16, 24 through 25, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's the Lord's promise. He's using, oh, metaphor here, no doubt. He's not saying you go find your wooden cross and carry it down the interstate. That's not the point. But he's saying that if you, number one, desire to come after me, he's not going to force anybody, let him deny himself. He's got to do it himself. You've got to deny yourself. You've got to say no to self. Then you take up the cross. That is a picture of sacrifice, humiliation or sub, uh, submission, and follow him. That's what a disciple is, a learner and a follower. And then he adds, if you seek to save your life, what is that? Well, uh, you're trying to live for your life in this world and your, your own self and your own pleasures and your own satisfaction. What will end up happening ultimately? You will lose it in the next life. But if you will lose your life for my sake, that is you surrender. And as Paul said, it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. He says you will find your life Oh yeah, you'll find it not only here, but you'll find it in eternity. And so the cross of Jesus, as we look at it this morning, it was required, it must be reenacted, it most certainly must be remembered, and it must be resembled in our lives. It is the pivotal point of history, but it is the crux of the issue. It is the, the center piece of our lives and should be every day that we live and as we remember him today we're thankful but we will leave here motivated to live our lives every day making a decision waking up every day today I will deny myself I will take up my cross and I will follow him and when the world sees me they don't see the old me but they see somebody different, so drastically different that they wonder what happened. Where, where did he go? But you know. And thank be, thanks be to God that he gives us the power to change and the mercy and the grace 
to be forgiven. And if you're here this morning and you have never come to the cross, you have an opportunity today. Jesus died as a substitute, an innocent substitute, so that you could be saved. In God's mercy, He provided that. And just like Adam and Eve were given a tunic to cover their shame, you know what God does? Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, For as many of us as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's a great, beautiful blessing. What a wardrobe that is. What a covering of shame that accomplishes. And if you're here today and we can assist you and you've never been baptized into Christ, come in your faith. Reenact what Jesus did for you that you can rise to walk in newness of life. While, while we stand in it, while we sing, the invitation is yours.